Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abel with Elias Randall. Eli, how's it going today? Good. That's good. good. Happy to be on the program. I'm welcoming you back for episode 100 and... Probably 140, I think. Probably last time was 139. So you've been on like 135 of them. Yeah, 130-ish. It's probably fair to say. I think I had Jonas, uh, Jonas came to pinch hit a couple weeks ago. You, I think you were gone somewhere. I don't remember what you had going on, but... Got to keep my fans happy. You know, I'm just wondering when the plat planer is going to come back. Never. Why? That was a good stick. Never. Moved on. You're no longer boring. I like that. Nope. I've moved on. Well, hey, what I thought we'd do is talk today a little bit about um, things that we see every day. We always see what we call financial green flags, you know, things that put your finances in a better spot than the average American. Like, what are the things people do? Because people always like to compare themselves to others. We get this all the time. Well, how am I compared to other people? And, you know, we don't really think that's relevant. We, we want to help make sure you're on track for what you need to accomplish, not compare you to others. But there are certain things that we see when we work with people that tend to be in better financial situations. And I think, you know, part of today's podcast is we want to talk about what those green flags are because we're positive people. We could talk about the red flags. That's easy. Let's talk about the good things people are doing are and the habits that we see of our most successful clients. I love that idea. Talking about what people do right. I like that. It's easy to talk about mistakes. And this is one thing I learned from is my high school basketball coach. He always used to tell us, everyone will tell you that you learn from losing. And he'd say, that's not right. You learn how to win from winning. So it's always good. It's easy to nitpick yourself and talk about, oh, I should have done this different, should have done that different, made a mistake. What about the things you're doing right? And can you build on those things? I, so I, I love that. Financial green flags. That's awesome. I got a question. So yeah, we're on YouTube. We're on the podcast, all the big podcast um, streaming apps. When was the last time on YouTube you saw somebody talking about the positive things people are doing, or it's always the market's crashing, the housing bubble, the recession that still isn't here, all the negative things that's all people ever put on YouTube. So my guess is this is going to be our lowest viewed video for the entire year because we're talking about positive things and nobody's really interested in positive things. They want to figure out what they should be scared about. That's pretty negative to say. You don't think people like positivity? I think it's boring compared to negative things. Like, yeah. oh, what's right. the thing the, that could scare me? What yeah. do I need to get excited about? Being good with money, that's not, like, exciting. No. and that's What's exciting? Getting, yeah. The house is going down 30% right. Stock, value. Yeah. No, it's not. Market's going to crash, all this stuff. Yeah, that that's get that gets people to click, right? Because you, exci you excite someone's emotions, then they're going to... Maybe oh, Molly, Molly, Molly will create some type of, type of really good clickbait to get people to click on it. But then it's just all positivity. So that's going to be Molly's mission as to how to make this clickbait friendly. There you being go. Positive. But so let's talk about the things that we see from clients that put them in better than average financial positions over the the entire you know gamut of people out there and i think the number one thing is and you're going to agree with this I, i'm sure of it because we talk about it a lot is that the one thing that sets our best clients apart and it doesn't have to be our clients just 
the best financial Americans, they have an emergency fund. They have a place to go get money when something bad happens. Yeah. What, what a, what a profound, profound idea. That's here's what it also, what an emergency fund does when you have it, an emergency fund, it's almost kind of like a, a peace of mind thing where, you know, for me, when, when our family, when we go splurge, we go to the movies, we go out to eat, maybe we travel and go on vacation. I don't ever have any buyer's remorse about stuff like that because part of it is I have a fully funded emergency fund. So, okay, like this morning I got a phone call. Hey, the hose, so the hose that attaches to the faucet in our kitchen sink, the, the connection piece, it's corroded. It's old, it, so we need to replace it. Not a big deal. We have an emergency fund. I'm not going to need my emergency fund to pay for it. It's a small part that I can just go replace. But it's also, it's not only responsible thing to do, but it's kind of freeing in a way where when you do go spend your money and you go have some fun, you don't have to worry about, oh man, I got home and I need a new water heater. Like you just have money to pay for it. So I think it's one, it's kind of a security blanket. Two, there's a lot of peace of mind. And three, it's also almost like a permission slip to go have some fun once in a while too, because you got to live life and you got to do things. Here's the beauty of emergency funds. For the last 15 years, people have used the excuse, well, I just don't want all this idle cash sitting there and not earning money. Yeah, I don't either. But. Nobody does, but that's not what the emergency fund's for. It's there to provide liquidity when you need it. The good news is you can get a decent yield in your emergency fund today. So people no longer can use the excuse, I don't have an emergency fund because I want to earn interest on it. So that number one excuse is gone. And our best, the most financial Americans don't care. They don't care what interest they're earning on the emergency fund. Well, they try to get the best interest rate with no risk or the least amount of risk? Absolutely. But what a lot of people I think did, because rates were so low, they couldn't earn any money here and they used it as an, as an excuse. And a lot of people that I know that don't have emergency funds, guess what they tell me their emergency fund is? Uh, their investment accounts. It could be, but you're assuming they have investments, which very few people do. So what do they? T- their credit card. Oh, if something bad happens, I'll just use my credit card and pay it off. And that's why you need to have an emergency fund, because if the credit card's your emergency fund, it means you're not able to save money. So you're just going to pay a bunch of interest on the credit card. I like that idea, though. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Kill me today. No, I mean, sure. I'm some people probably use that as a good strategy for most people. Not a well, not actually, a great strategy. here's what I started thinking. And we talked about this on a different show recently about how I want a new car. And remember, it was like, oh, your wants can turn into needs. Well, I could use my emergency fund and then go buy a new car, and then I have my credit card. Then that could be – so I could probably come around to that idea. My credit card's my emergency fund now. What happens when the credit card's maxed out and the interest is 22% (laughs) and all the bad things? Uh I know you won't do that, but Uh you're you're playing a little spoof there. Um, The second thing that we see with our most successful clients is that they really don't carry bad debt. And what do we can what do we consider bad debt? Credit cards, um, car loans, things of that nature. Good debt, it'd be your home. 
maybe student loans. You could maybe classify that as good debt if it's going to help you, you know, get a better job. But I'm very cautious of that because I, I feel like a lot of the student debt that's accumulated is really just because people wanted to go party for four years. And, Ouch. And I'm not going to use like any specific degrees, but if you're going to college without a purpose, you're going for a party and maybe the party's your purpose. I don't know. I mean, it kind of was for me until I knew what I wanted to do. But then when I got a degree, like there's a reason I was getting a specific degree. It wasn't just to get a job. Yeah. So it's hard to classify for me student loan debt as good or bad. That one's kind of a borderline deal because it does depend on the person and what they're studying. And so here's a good question. Maybe, and I'll, I want to know what your answer is. What's the interest rate you would utilize to determine whether you should pay something off, assuming you believe it's good debt, whether you should pay it off or invest? Do you use like an interest rate to determine? No, I don't. I guess I've never quantified it that way for myself, but. Do you know why that, we, do you know why yeah. you haven't? You haven't had to. Because rates right. have been zero. A, yeah. So I'm gonna tell you why. Though. I've never so in my career in buying homes and stuff, I've never these are the highest interest rates that have been going on. So think about this. If you know, a lot of people have a home equity line of credit that they've utilized. Maybe they didn't have the twenty percent down payment, so they did an eighty percent first with a five percent home equity line of credit. Well, Three years ago, the interest rate on line of credit was like three and a half percent. Today it's eight and a half. Or what if you took a home loan at seven percent? You know, there's a time where we would never consider paying that home off sooner because the interest rate was two and a half or three percent. At seven, I'm gonna start considering paying down my mortgage faster than potentially investing more money. And I get it. Yeah. yeah, there there could be, if I had a 7% mortgage rate, there could be a situation where my investments may make more money than that, but there's very few that are guaranteeing a 7% static rate of return. So I think people are going to have decisions to make here in the near future based upon where interest rates are is to do want to just keep plowing all this money into savings, which we should do, or should I start knocking off some of this house. And it just makes me think about why utilizing a financial plan or financial decision tree is even more important. Because what do we really need people to figure out? One, how much do we need to be saving to hit our goals? Because we can quantify that. But two, should I start knocking out this mortgage sooner or should I accelerate savings? If you don't have a plan, you're purely just guessing at this point. You are guessing, but not, since we're on the topic, I guess 7%, yeah, that's probably the ballpark of where I would start to to really think about accelerated debt payments versus saving money because what reasonable expectation on your stock portfolio if you're 8 to 10% annualized over the long term, but that's not a static return, there's right? So there's involved. definitely going to be years where you would just be better off paying off your debt. Um, yeah. Seven's like right there, seven eight percent, because that's that's starting to be a hurdle. That I think it's just an interesting question that people are going to start to ask themselves that they haven't actually had to be concerned with in the past. 
we now have yeah, to be concerned with it. You're really convincing me that I should just never sell the house I have because it's locked in at 3% for 30 years. Okay. Good. Or 20 my, some now, but my wife would like to build a new house and so would I, but our interest rates 2.75% and that's hard we, to walk. We're having from. this, we we're having this discussion a lot, a lot like why? I mean, it's so inexpensive compared to where we would go for the increased interest rate along with the increase in the price you're going to spend on the new place. You know what I mean? So these are discussions and it's probably why there's no housing market inventory. If I'm thinking about it, if I'm saying, man, do I really want to give this rate up? I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people that are saying I'm not willing to give up a sub 3% interest rate to yeah. go pick up one at seven. And there's another story here. If I'd potentially rent my house if I could, but I've got a pool in the backyard. I don't really want to rent a house and have the liability. So I've got a little conundrum there. If I didn't, if I didn't have that, I would probably just rent the thing and keep that as a lifelong asset based upon that interest rate. And it, when I bought it and all those different things. And it's probably just hasn't been enough time I do think psychologically, once people feel that the interest rate environment, like the psychology of it, this is normal instead of, oh man, it used to be this and now it's this, because we're still kind of at the beginning. So right now I feel like it's probably more sticky than if we go another three years and that's just what rates are. People are going to have to move. Right. And eventually people will just, I'm going to pay the extra cost. Well, because that's what they really want. But arguably, they should be able to afford to pay the extra cost because the only way we keep interest rates where they are now is because we have elevated inflation. So wage inflation should come with that. Their other assets should continue to appreciate. Right. So that should over time offset that that increase in rate. We should have higher asset prices. So you're getting more money for your house. Should have more equity if you had a 2.75 or 3% interest rate. But I just think it's a really good question to pose to people like, What's the number that you start to feel like maybe I should be more aggressive paying off the debt? I have an answer now, 7%. That's my answer now. I like it. Uh, we also see, and I think this is, you know, next to having the emergency fund, they have our most successful clients, most successful financial Americans have what we call a, a good spending plan. They may not do like a, a dialed in to the penny budget, but they have a very good sense of where their money's going each month and where they're allocating dollars to. They're not, maybe not so concerned if I only spend, you know, if our grocery budget's $900, they're not getting all up, bent out of shape if they spent 985 bucks. But they have a general idea where all of their money is going. And it's not just, man, where'd the money go this month? Because that's what happens to most people. Where did it all go? most people have no idea where their money disappeared to. Yeah. And that's, again, this is something almost everyone who's successful with money has in common. They know where they're spending their dollars and they know how those, those dollars are being directed. And it's, it's something you, you can control, right? You, you absolutely can to an extent control your budget and, and where you're spending money. Now you obviously, you got to eat, right? If you have a family, it's just going to cost you whatever it costs to have groceries and have stuff for your family. But 
understanding that is something um, everyone successful with money has in common. The uh, I'll start this next one here. Uh, a strong credit score. So that's 800 and above to be considered excellent, excellent credit. And it's an important tool. You know, it should not be um, used unwisely, like just credit cards and 0% interest and racking up a lot of debt. But if you have a higher credit score, that's how you qualify for better mortgage, um, better interest rates on any type of loan and certainly a mortgage and stuff like that. So Our best clients also understand how retirement accounts work. And they don't need to know everything, but they understand the general, you know, rules of how they work. And and when I say retirement accounts, they know the difference between, in general, a Roth investment account and a pre-tax traditional account, whether that's a traditional 401k or traditional IRA or Roth 401k and Roth IRA. And they understand the difference. And the most successful people out there understand why one or the other or both are most optimal for their situation. And I know the people we work with know this because we run scenarios and we quantify, you know, Roth conversion strategies or backdoor Roth IRA strategies or super backdoor Roth IRA strategies, whatever they are we talk about those with people and try to educate those people on why you should have certain accounts. And the thought that it's one account for everybody, like some people are like, I have to have all Roth. I want all my money in Roth. And we've had clients who've come in and said, we want all of my, I want to convert all my money to Roth over the next five years. Do you know how many continue converting over five years? Not all of them because they didn't pay attention to the, I mean, they were adamant about doing it. So it's your money. We'll, we'll do. And we had their tax person ran an entire strategy for them on how to do it. But then at the same time, what wasn't included and in that CPA strategy was the increased Medicare premiums and some increased costs associated with it. And now they, two years in, they're like wondering, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. So then we get involved Hey, this is the real cost to do it. Is it really worth it? So it's not one account is perfect for everybody. It's unique to everybody's situation. And as advisors, we're no different. Every every day, I try to determine, not every day, but a lot. I try to determine what's the right mix for my family between traditional 401k and Roth 401k. And if we just did one size fits all, we do all, all Roth 401k, but my circumstance is different than yours or three other people. It doesn't have to be a one shoe or one size fits all for everybody here, but our best clients understand the difference in why we're utilizing different types of tax strategies in their investment accounts. The other thing I'll mention, cause we've had this too, when people do Roth conversions and so financial planning philosophy aside and tax strategies aside, there's a difference between things making sense like from a, a strategical standpoint and a, and a strategy to implement and then also kind of psychologically how it feels. So even though potentially maybe Roth conversions and some other tax strategies are the most beneficial thing for a client's long-term 
outlook. But what if, right, what if paying the taxes every year is just so painful that the person then goes, you know what, my kids can pay these taxes when they inherit the money, right? Because you can't quantify the emotion of it. Like I can show you all the compelling reasons to do it, but then if, you know, if you're burning the end of your fingertip when you're writing that check, you just don't want to do it. And that's fine too, right? There's no, to your point, there's no just one size fits all solution for people. We actually had that happen like three years ago. Client right. who's become a very good friend of mine at lunch. And he said, Hey, you know, my wife just doesn't really like writing that tax check. Do we have to do this? I said, no, you don't have <laughs> to do this. It's completely up to you whether you do this or not. It doesn't matter. So that's a really good point, Eli. The last one we're going to talk about today is the best clients, the most successful financial, you know, individuals in America, their retirement plan is not just social security. Social security is not a retirement plan. I know we've all contributed, but it should not be your retirement plan. No. And it, is it possible if you don't have any debt, is it possible to live off your social security? It's possible. I know people that do it, but at the same time, they're supplementing their lifestyle with their retirement accounts. So, I mean, you're not going to have, you're certainly going to take, I think if that's all you have is social security, I, you're probably taking a step backwards in lifestyle once you stop working. Well, here's the beauty, because we have clients who literally just live on their social security, but it's not because they have to. It's a choice. They see that as their paycheck coming yeah. in and all this money that they've accumulated and saved, they're only utilizing for rainy day fund or I want to take a vacation with my family. That's outside of what I have here in this yeah. social security and update uh, vehicles. Yeah. That, do that, a project that's how they, at the house. You got it. But the most successful people, that's their liquidity is their other investments. If it's just social security, well, you don't really have a retirement. You just have a government funded lifestyle, which the most successful people out there aren't looking for a government funded lifestyle. Hey, but when I can start getting those social security checks, I'm taking them. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm going to take them. I encourage all my clients to get what they're yep. legally entitled to. Uh, but the most successful people in retirement have other accounts they can go to if they need funding. They do. So Elias, since we're talking about what we see from the most successful clients, most successful financial individuals in America, I think the most successful one out there that comes to mind for me is Jonas's favorite person. It's an Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett. And uh, he actually released a little, or he was quoted on some of his best savings and investing tips for retirees. And when somebody's been as successful as Warren Buffett has been, I think we should all listen. And th this actually came out of uh, some of his remarks from the re most recent Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And um, here's some of the best piece of advice that he actually has given to retirees. And I think this is a really good first bit of advice on how to actually invest money. And I, you're going to agree with this, but have purpose. Your investments should have a purpose. And what, what do I mean by purpose? Purpose isn't just growth. Why do we want growth out of this investment? Is it because we need to generate an income later on? Is it because we want to fund college? Is it for a 
um, second home. And what it brings me back to Elias is what we actually do for people. You think about what we're trying to create and craft for people. It's not finding the next like schnazzy investment. It's not trying to outperform the stock market. It's trying to put together a plan that gets you from A to B. But that plan we do revolves 100% around goals-based planning, which is giving your money purpose. And once you give your money purpose, then it becomes more meaningful and it becomes easier to figure out how you need to invest this money. And it's real goals, right? If you have purpose and a real goal for your money, it can provide a higher level of conviction where I've told many people over the years that just wanting to have more money or earn the best rate of return I can, like those aren't real, those aren't real goals. Why? Because there's no purpose behind it. Just wanting more to, to have more is, is not a real goal. But if it's, well, I want to re be able to re replace my lifestyle when I retire. I want to be able to take my family on a nice trip. I would like to be financially independent. I want to retire early. Like those are goals. Those are things that we can create a strategy to help people, people achieve. But I just want to have as much as I can. Well, then, okay, just save as much as you possibly can and buy a good portfolio. Have as much as you possibly can someday. He also mentioned don't risk your financial security for your family. And this is really hard for people because we all say family first. But there's two instances that I think of think of this. And the first is we meet with lots of younger people who want to provide college or pay for their children's school. And they're like, what do you think we should do? And our default has always been, let's make sure you're on track to accomplish all of your retirement and financial goals before we start worrying about funding a college savings plan. And the reason's pretty simple. I'm yet to see children help their parents retire. That doesn't happen. doesn't happen because they're worried about building up their own retirement account, taking care of your family. So if you forego your retirement to make sure your child's college education is paid for, and I'm not saying that's good, bad, or indifferent. I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying that if you forego saving for your retirement to pay for their college, you're actually making yourself a burden on them. They're going to worry about you in retirement and they're not going to help you retire. They have to worry yeah. about themselves. So that's, that's the first a good thing. point. And that's not, it's not selfish to prioritize your own savings. It's practical approach. It actually may be considered selfish to not do that. Right. Because if you're yeah, prioritizing certainly. paying for something that has other ways to be funded, I, your kids work and pay for it themselves, or they work to get scholarships and they work really hard and do all these other things it actually could be considered selfish to forego saving for your retirement because you're going to become a burden for them later on, or you're going to be on a social security plan. Mm -hmm. The second thing we hear, <laughs> interestingly, is people want to give their money away to their children. And that's okay. But give it away as far as inheritance? Yeah. I mean, they might have a you know large investment account and they want to start giving it away before the end of their life. I have clients like this. It's okay. They want to give it away. But we have the discussion like, 
but we don't know what you're going to need in retirement. We have an idea. But what happens if you get sick? You need a nursing home, all these other different factors that come into play. Yeah, hopefully they're ready to give some back. And then the last thing he talks about is, um, you know, the relationship with just saving money. And Warren Buffett believes in a very simplistic approach. He just believes investing should be pretty simple. If you look at what he owns, it's a lot of allocation of the S&P 500. So I think the takeaway from this is that investing doesn't have to be complicated. You don't need 47 different ETFs and mutual funds to be successful. They don't need to make it complicated. Simplicity in investing a lot of times is a lot better. You know what I was thinking about recently? I think it was on a walk recently. The stock market doesn't care how hard you try, right? Like you can spend all this time doing research. You can sit in front of your computer and analyze charts and try really, really hard, right? And make it complicated. And guess what? The market's still going to do what it's going to do. You have no idea what direction it's going. Yeah. Can you do some analysis and get a sense of what the trends are and can you educate yourself and know what asset classes do well in different environments? You can, but at the end of the day, there's no reward in our business for effort. There just really isn't. I think what people need to recognize is what financial advisors actually do. People don't hire us to outperform the market. If they do, they went to the wrong spot. Good luck. People hire somebody. financial advisors to make their life simpler, to delegate their time, knowledge, and desire to somebody else to do this, and to put together a well-crafted, well-written financial plan to accomplish their goals. That's what you hire an advisor to do. It's not to make more money than the stock market. That, that's not what you're, if, if your goal is to just make the stock market return, they'll just buy the stock market. But there's a lot of value advisors add that's through the planning and the tax strategies and all the different moving parts, the distribution strategy that you create for somebody. That's where the value is added. It's not finding in better better investments. If somebody pitches you that my investments is are better than somebody else's, you're getting a sales pitch. Hmm. That's it. Yeah, there's no. If, if someone says no mine are better, bullets. there's no silver bullets. We would all be here. using it. Yeah, it would take over the whole world. If there was yeah. one investment that was superiorly better you know, substantially better than everything else. That's all we'd use. And, you know, there's, there's, especially the last couple of years, there's times where we just, we provide a lot of value just by keeping people out of their own way. Right. Cause like eventually people that do a good job saving, well, eventually they get to a point where they have a lot of money and they have a high investable net worth. And then it's just, it's probably natural to think, well, maybe this should be more complicated. Maybe I should be doing something different. And just, it can be as simple as we might get an email. Hey, I read this article. Is this something I should be doing or considering? No, it's complicated. Probably not. You know, what's the value of us just keeping people from stubbing their own toe along the way and getting in their own way by making, might make you feel good to do something complicated. Is the result going to be there? Probably not. Like, it's just, like I said at the beginning of this 
segment. It's the market doesn't care about your effort and how hard you try to figure it out. The last thing I want to talk about, and this is great because I, I have people a lot of times that ask, you know, am I better off, you know, buying a house? Should I start investing early? This is simply the one investment table people need to see. And I'll Molly post it out there, but it, it it's basically a savings. Uh, it's the, it's a table of somebody saving $300 a month at 8% interest and how much money they'll have in 20 years, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 years from now. And 8%, that's just a static return. But if you put away just $300 a month for 30 years, so you're a 20 year old, let's say 25, at 55, if you saved 300 a month at 8%, 30 years later, you have $407,000. So here, here's the other cool number, 45 years. 45 years of doing just $300 a month, you'd have $1.39 million. A 20-year-old with a job could be a millionaire by 65 by saving $300. Yeah. It's that, amazing. Yeah. That, and honestly, they probably will save more than that because your company probably has a match. I mean, this is just like the bare minimum savings. Most people can scratch together 75 bucks a week to put into something. So this is the most important savings table you'll see because it breaks out exactly where you can be in 20, 25, 30 years. And if you're, you know, and it also shows the longer you wait, the less you're going to have. And what I mean by that is you're 45, you got 20 years to go. Well, $300 a month for 20 years is 164,000. If you would have started 20 years sooner, you had a million bucks. That's the difference. Yeah, and, and as you go along, you'll just be really amazed at how your accounts can compound and grow. You know, when people talk about compound interest, it's really amazing what can happen just by being a good investor and having some good good savings habits. Well, Elias, with that said, good show. It was all a positive show today, so um, we like to put the positive vibe out there. Looking forward to everybody coming back for another show. I want to thank everybody for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.